Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Hey guys, this is Dana Schwartz. You probably noticed this is not a normal episode of Noble Blood. And that's because I was a guest on the podcast Significant Others, hosted by the incredibly fun and charming Liza Paul O'Brien. We just had a blast talking about, uh, well, significant others in history, famous spouses of monarchs and nobles, which has been a topic that we've covered on this show, but it was just so fun to be able to chat about it casually with Liza. So I really hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And of course, your regular episode will be coming Tuesday. Welcome back to Significant Others. I'm Liza Powell O'Brien, and just because I'm deep in research for season two doesn't mean we have to stop bringing you stories of interesting plus ones. In the first of these bonus episodes, Stacey Schiff and I talked about her new book, The Revolutionary, which is all about Samuel Adams and his wildly underreported role in the birth of America. So check that one out if you haven't already. And as royal relationships are very much in the media these days, even more than usual, I thought it would be interesting to delve a little bit into the idea of a royal marriage in general, since there really isn't anything else like it, and to talk about a few of the more significant examples of what that kind of a marriage can look like. So I reached out to the absolute queen, no pun intended, of such information, historian, author, and host of the delightful podcast Noble Blood, Dana Schwartz. Dana, thank you so much for talking with us today. For anyone who's listening who might not already be familiar with your podcast, could you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, absolutely. It's a scripted podcast where I research and write um, episodes, every episode exploring sort of a lesser known story from the lives of, of royals throughout history. Some are sort of lesser known stories or aspects about really famous people like Marie Antoinette or Anne Boleyn. But I also try to capture you know, fascinating stories about people that maybe American listeners might not have even heard about. Like I just recorded an episode about this Portuguese princess named Inez de Castro, queen actually, um, but sort of her her gruesome and, and tragic death. So yeah, a, a lot of um, perhaps surprising amount of, of royal stories and uh, in gruesome deaths, but that's part of the fun. It, it's so addictive, your podcast. Oh, I have gosh. to really, honestly, it, it it's almost problematic because I'll start listening to them and then I realize four hours have gone by and <laughs> I've done, I've attended to no children. I've, I've cooked no meals. Um, so <laughs> you have to limit your intake. Uh, Thank that's you how good much. it is. The highest <laughs> praise. Um, so in this podcast, we focus on intimate relationships, sometimes parents or friends of historical figures. Usually it's a spouse. That's because I've always been really personally fascinated by um, intense one-on-one relationships, um, especially marriages. Yeah. And one of the things I find especially interesting in marriages is power dynamics and how they differ. And when it comes to royal marriages, which is sort of falling under your umbrella of expertise, I find that to be so specific because there's such an inherent power imbalance baked in from the beginning. Absolutely. 
And I have just observed myself that there's a whole range of responses that humans throughout history have had to this condition of being put in the position of being a royal spouse. And, you know, everything from totally compliant to completely revolutionary. And I thought you might be the best person to walk us through some of those examples. So I'm just wondering if you can, what whatever comes to you in response to that idea of like, what are the different ways that this kind of relationship has played out? Absolutely. I think the power dynamic that you're pointing out is so important when we're talking about royal marriages. Uh, one, because traditionally, let's say for several hundred years, it would be a man in charge of any marriage, you know, any family relationship. And then to to give someone the power of, you know, absolute rule, God's vessel on earth, that power sort of takes on an even bigger light. I think when we're talking about royal wives, the first thing that pops into most people's heads is King Henry VIII and his six wives. And what mm. a fascinating saga that is because of the way he went from woman to woman. And I think in the stories, these women sort of are are unfortunately always sort of seen in response to him. And I think it's been a modern movement, like in the musical Six, to try to reclaim their own agency and sort of the narrative potential of them. I mean, you think of someone like Henry VIII's first wife, Catherine of Aragon, who was his loyal wife at his side for 20 plus years. I mean, this is a woman who was a princess in her own right, the the daughter of two of the most important monarchs in Europe, the aunt of the Holy Roman Emperor, like the most connected and powerful individual a woman can be at this time, really, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. she's the Queen of England. Her parents are, are a king and a queen. Her family is massively powerful throughout Europe. Uh, her you know, nephew at a certain point sacks the Vatican, has the Vatican under his control. <laughs> she has all the mechanisms of power. And yet, because this woman, even though she's been a loyal, loving wife for 20 plus years, even though the kingdom loves her, you know, she's seen as this pious woman, because she hasn't provided Henry with a son, he does everything in his power to dispose of her. Hmm. And he, he does. I mean, yes. even though, again, like, the stopgaps in place to prevent a man just from saying, I don't want to be married to you anymore at this point are, I mean, he's the head of the church and mm -hmm. she's uh, a subject, a subject, but they're Catholic, right? Like he can't right. divorce. He will right. literally separate from the Catholic church, become excommunicated, start the Church of England. He will do everything in his power to to undermine their marriage. And she has she plays all of her cards and it doesn't work like that. Mm. I think the tragedy of that is so emblematic of the way that a man has power over his wife in, in certain ways. But then and again, not to monologue and ramble because I love this it. Is clearly, I'm already like, give me the popcorn. I'm ready yeah, to go. You put a microphone <laughs> in front of me and I start, you know, <laughs> I mean, and then you have a situation like Catherine the Great, who it's this mm -hmm. very strange, different dynamic where Catherine the Great is a German princess mm -hmm. from a lowborn family um, is sort of brought in to marry the heir to the Russian throne because they think she's sort of going to be easily controlled. Uh, again, she has none of the entrenched political power that someone like Catherine of Aragon would have had. But over the course of her marriage to Peter, Catherine ingratiates herself to the Russian people, mm -hmm. converts to Russian orthodoxy in a way that like the people fall in love with. 
learns the Russian language. There's a story about her. She she catches ill very early on in her marriage, and the story and she's bedridden. And the story that sort of spreads that feeds into her legend is that she was up at night pacing on the cold floor hmm. studying Russian, and that's why people like fall in love with her. Hmm. And her husband is such an ineffective bad emperor in so many ways that six months into his reign, even though she wasn't Russian born, even though she wasn't heir to the throne, even though she really has no claim to the Russian throne in any legitimate way we we might imagine through lineage, she rallies the the armies behind her, the people behind her, the church behind mm-hmm. her, and overthrows her own husband. So she was ambitious. So it's sort of like there are these, the, Catherine Varagon, I, I don't know how ambitious she might have been. Anne Boleyn is always portrayed, portrayed as very ambitious. Yeah. Right? And I don't, again, I don't know. So much myth has been made about all of yeah. Henry's, well, Henry himself and all of his wives. And I don't know. I sort of love the idea of Anne Boleyn as like a, you know, a schemer. <laughs> I don't know how much it was right place, right time, you know. I mean, it's, she... She had a very limited opportunity, right? It's like mm-hmm. her family is saying, like, do this thing. This is the one thing you're supposed to do. This is how to advance as a woman. I mean, in the 1500s, advancing as a woman was a marrying better. Prospect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and then not getting beheaded. <laughs> and if the king wants you, you're you're you have fewer cards to play than than maybe people think. And I my Anne Boleyn hot take is I think she played her cards magnificently. Mm. And if she had happened to have a son, she would have been fine. Right. And because she didn't, uh, these things, yeah. Ha- yeah. Yeah, these things. <laughs> these things happen. But like, it was an impossible <laughs> situation, right? And then yeah. the, the patriarchy does that to us. <laughs> so when was the first appointed royal spouse who was male? Oh, gosh. I guess it, it depends on um, if we're going to count... Uh, Empress Matilda. So there's, are you watching the new Game of Thrones by chance? I'm not. I'm not. Okay. So for people who are watching House of the Dragon, mm-hmm. the character um, Rhaenyra, like the young princess who is mm-hmm. claiming queen, is sort of based on this figure named Empress Matilda, who, depending on who you ask, counts or doesn't count as a a monarch of of England. Mm. So she was the daughter of King Henry I. His only legitimate son, uh, William, died uh, in a a ship disaster. A ship Mm -hmm. crashed against some rocks. And so her father said, my daughter Matilda is my heir. Of course, then her father dies. And uh, a lot of people in 1100 England mm. say, no, we do not. I know we swore for fealty to her when your father is alive, but your father is not alive anymore. And so there becomes a, a civil war in England known as the anarchy. And mm. her nephew, cousin, nephew, um, I'm, I'm going to get this wrong. And so I, I hope no one angrily corrects me. <laughs> a relative, uh, either a cousin or a nephew, Stephen, is is sort of the the counterfaction who, who then claims power. But Matilda, who was fighting in this civil war, for her right um, to the throne, had her husband, Geoffrey, who was focused on conquering Normandy, which was also considered mm. part of the, the English crown's uh, mm. power at that time. So that that's sort of an interesting husband. Fascinating. There's There are other few sort of interesting 
dynamics where a wife has technically higher claim at a given time, like Mary, Queen of Scots, was married to a prince of France who then became the king of France. But at the time that they were married, she was the queen of Scotland. Her mother was ruling in her stead and her her half-brother was sort of ruling while she was in France. But she was the independent queen of a country married to the Dauphin of France. Uh, and that had its own interesting political dynamics because being... But unfortunately, as Mary, Queen of Scots, learned, like her marriages only ever really diminished her power. Um, hmm. She she makes the terrible decision to marry this man named Lord Darnley, who she had been charmed by, but was a was a terrible match. He dies in mysterious uh, an explosion that was a, and then he was found strangled like there was a murder attempt because he was awful and. Mary, Queen of Scots, was sort of like, oh, no, my husband died. That's so sad. I'm, you know, I'll definitely look into what happened. (laughs) But the people of Scotland at the time see that and don't like that that's her reaction. And then she marries in her third marriage the man who was implicated in her second husband's death, Mm. which the people of Scotland absolutely hate. Mm -hmm. And some historians say she didn't have a choice in that matter, that, you know, he he raped and kidnapped her. Mm. Some say that, you know, she just made a terrible calculation. But either way, those were two matches that ultimately diminished her power. And someone like her cousin, Elizabeth I of England, realized that she's already queen. Mm-hmm. Marrying a man is only going to... going to Compromise her. Compromise her power. Thank you. Exactly. And so is she the only example? She's the most obvious example of an unmarried female monarch. Is there other... Is there yes. anyone else who did that? Uh, in England, no, I'm sure around the world there are, mm-hmm. and I just off the top of my head can't can't recall. Uh, definitely, absolutely, several African uh, monarchs and mm. queens, but in England, no. Queen Elizabeth made the the calculation of ruling as a virgin queen, but and th- there's a benefit of that, right? Which is that she doesn't have to submit to a man, but mm-hmm. the cost of that is it's the end of the Tudor dynasty. Mm-hmm. Because she doesn't mm-hmm. have heirs, and at the mm-hmm. end of the day, the, the purpose of a of a monarchy is to create your dynasty, have it keep going, create heirs. And I think part of the problem, also, especially in the 1500s, if we're talking about Elizabeth I, childbirth is is a is a very dangerous prospect. Sure. So it's that's it's very much a bodily risk. That's right. So to put the monarch through that kind of a trial yeah. from which ha- what percentage of women didn't, you know, emerge successfully at 30 percent, you know. Sure. Yeah. So I'm totally making that. And up. I'm Talk like about, that. That sounds yeah, right. I don't know off the top of my it head, 30. but it's it's very it's dangerous, right? <laughs> it, You're putting yeah. the, the monarch in. That's in right. A very vulnerable position. Right. Um, in terms of the selection process, for lack of a better phrase, for these royal partners. You know, we know sort of in pop culture what the story is about, you know, the current royal family in England or the most recent generation. But was there, like, was it selected by the ruling monarch? Was there a council? Was it the family? Was it all of the above? How did that work? The family in most cases, because you are absolutely correct that these are not decisions very often made for love. These yeah. are strategic decisions. Right. The The role of marriage for uh, a lot of, of, you know, Western history from a certain, you know, from 
at least as long as we have like the English monarchy recorded, it was to secure alliances. It was to secure political or religious alliances to combine land. Uh, dowries were important. And so, yeah, love was sort of a something reserved for poor people. I suppose. Right. Like almost a luxury that the monarchy couldn't afford. Right. Yeah. And we can't worry about that. It was very much understood, especially in France at the time. Royal mistress was an official position. Right. With a salary and apartments that you lived in. It was. Yeah, that's the ticket. Right. So it was (laughs) almost (laughs) akin to. I mean, it wasn't marriage, obviously, because marriage was considered this very political, legal. Right. Religious institution. But it was almost a marriage of sorts because by appointing someone your royal mistress they are they have an official position in your life and so i think in france it was very much understood that your wife is to fulfill this certain role right. and your mistress is to fulfill uh, another role and i actually think now you've gotten me on my on my high horse this is sort of a, a pet subject of mine it was to marie antoinette's detriment that her husband never did take a mistress her husband, uh, Louis XVI, was sort of awkward. It took them seven years to consummate their marriage. Mm. He was not a very sexual person. I, I think sometimes people like to think, well, was he gay? And I think, no, I think more likely he just was maybe closer to asexual. He just wasn't mm. very sexual. And Marie Antoinette, because he never had an official royal mistress to sort of defer court attention and gossip, mm and the more frivolous aspects of courtly life, Marie Antoinette was in this unfortunate position of being forced to do both, where she was mm. both the one that everyone looked to for fashion and style and gossip, but also at the same time, she was expected to be, you know, the royal mother and the queen mm. and and honor that position with, with the dignity they expected. There's a famous example of a portrait that was painted in 1783 of Marie Antoinette in a simple Muslim um, gown, like a chemise-style gown that was Mm. meant to evoke farm simplicity. She was doing 1780s cottage core. (laughs) And that was very fashionable at the time for rich people to sort of play at simplicity, you know, the way I think people kind of do on TikTok today, like baking bread. But at the time, this portrait was so scandalous that it was pulled from display wow. because the first response was uh, that it was too sexual, that it looked like she was in mm-hmm. her undergarments, that it was so mm-hmm. casual, and that as a queen, she she you know she was dishonoring the the position as queen, the, the mm-hmm. status, the title, the 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 status that she held. She was sullying herself, sullying, with well, sullying the position of queen, yeah. and also you know imagine she's trying to. Uh, put the French silk merchants out of business Mm. by not wearing a silk gown. Mm -hmm. And so it was this sort of horrible thing where it backfired on every count where I think common people in France saw her as being condescending, you know, Mm -hmm. as sort of like slumming it where they're like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. You know, the way that I think if we saw, you know, a celebrity today making (laughs) rice and beans and being like, oh, I love eating or whatever, you know, some like very casual food where you're like, what? Like, that's not what you are. But then the rich people were like, you are selling your position as queen. Mm. And so it fully backfired on every account. Where did this line up with her farm that she famously created behind Versailles? We are exactly there. You absolutely (laughs) nailed it. She had 
People also make fun of this a lot. She had this thing called the Queen's Hamlet, which was a working, it was a model farm, but it was a working dairy farm mm-hmm. where she went to escape because Versailles was like being in a fishbowl. You are always watched and every step from the order in which you get dressed in the morning to your meals is watched and perfectly mm-hmm. choreographed. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, like you imagine, like she just wanted like a a breather, like a minute right. just to like be by herself and just hang out. And this was actually very common in the late 1700s of nobles building these sort of faux farms to evoke mm-hmm. a Home, domestic homie. simplicity. Homie, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, she had a, a, a fake working farm and she was sort of dress up like a... Um, you know, in more casual clothes and and just um, spend time with her children, which was also considered a very weird thing she did. Right. It was like, why are you spending all this time parenting your children? Don't you know you can pay people to parent your children for you? Ugh, that echoes with Lady Diana and, yeah, and right? her, her interests also. Um, y- you said something that I have been very curious about since I listened to your episode on the Mad King, King George III. We're talking about how he, he whatever his affliction was, was sort of at bay for many years and he became ill later in his life. But for, there was a long period of time where he was sort of managing the royal business fairly well. And he had all these siblings who were sort of crazy. I mean, they yeah. were all acting insane and nobody was marrying who they were supposed to marry. And and I was just thinking about like, you know, I don't hear much just as a lay person, and I don't know how big of an area of scholarship it is, but of these royals who, you know, were with this incredibly strict and conventional idea of marriage and partnership in that way, like what what of the, you know, the queer royals through history, like do we know anything about any of them? And you know, I'm sure their fate was complicated uh, if it was recorded at all. But do you know anything about any of that? Yeah, we have um, a few interesting stories. So there was King Edward II of England, and this is now in the late 1200s. And there was a man, I mean, because so much of it isn't recorded the way that I think modern sources would want it to be recorded. And I think these these things are complicated because I don't think these, the characters, Characters, the people at the time wouldn't have <laughs> called themselves gay or queer. That vocabulary sure. didn't exist, and so I, as like an untrained historian, am always like wary to to put these labels on people. Sure. But King Edward II of England, who was you know King of England, this is late twelve hundreds, early thirteen hundreds, had a favorite, mm-hmm. Piers Pierce Gaveston, who sort of had exclusive access to the king. Uh, it was heavily implied this was um, a romantic relationship. I mean, I would argue that it absolutely is romantic, if not sexual, but medieval chroniclers. So even at the time, people were writing that this relationship is sexual. Mm-hmm. Um, Christopher Marlowe, the playwright, sort of mm-hmm. a contemporary of Shakespeare, basically says as much in the play, Edward II. Mm. And some modern historians, I think, disagree on the extent of the sexual relationship. But... He was very much his favorite, and it's a it's a tragic story. I mean, basically, the other nobles don't like this favoritism, sure. and they retaliate against him, and they retaliate against Pierce. And like, this is a a time when even being king could only go so far at certain points, because again, marriage at this time is not about happiness; it's right. about securing this religious political alliance. 
mm-hmm. and having heirs and a, a lover of the same sex. In I think it was sort of a sometimes a don't ask, don't tell policy of certain monarchs. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it really was um, politically damaging. I mean, mm-hmm. part of what led to Marie Antoinette's downfall was the incredible amount of political propaganda against her, which were cartoons of her engaged right. in sexual lesbian acts with her closest ladies in waiting. Mm. And so I think it is a challenge of historians today to sort of tease out when these relationships were sexual, because obviously gay people existed because people That's right. existed. That's right. Um, but yeah, the sources are tricky. And I think because for so much of European history, Christianity was so deeply ingrained in society, one man, one woman. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So queer relationships were both powerful tools of propaganda because accusing some of it, someone of it was obviously incredibly damaging, mm. but also something that someone would have kept a secret. You also have that great episode on the person whose name I am not going to remember, the French, um, oh, the, the French Chevalier trans. Yes, yes, exactly. Which is uh, such a great story. It's so interesting to untangle it. And and I won't go into the whole story, but it is, um, I like to think a, a person who chose of her own free will to live as a woman. Mm-hmm. And even though we wouldn't have had, or they wouldn't have had the vocabulary to call themselves trans, I, I think it's so interesting to remind people that no, for hundreds of years, people made these decisions. Right. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Is there a time that you can peg it to in terms of when, I don't remember when the sort of modern sensibility about what romantic love is and how it plays into marriage, I can't remember when that sort of entered uh, the society, yeah. in, in the Western world anyway. But in the sense of royal marriages, I don't think they are anymore meant to be about <laughs> international alliances, at no. least again in Europe or Western And yet they Europe. still have that. Now their success rate is just through the roof. We, we did right. away with that. And they, they're, they all works perfectly. We fixed perfectly. all the problems. Yeah. Yeah. But was there a moment where it shifted? I think one of the, the key moments, at least in my understanding, is the relationship between Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. Mm-hmm. This was a situation where Victoria fell head over heels in mm. love. And she was devoted to Albert to a fault. Mm. I mean, she loved her husband so much that when he died, she spent the rest of her life in mourning. I mean, Mm. it's so funny because obviously the Victorian era is so powerful and we imagine her as such a large, I mean, she's tiny. She's like, you know, four foot 10, but a larger than life figure in in English history. 
and she was obsessed with her husband to a degree that I think like nowadays people would be jealous of. I'm like, oh my God. She hated having children. She, they had, Mm. you know, 10 children and she absolutely hated having children, but she just loved being intimate with her husband and no one taught her about birth control. So, you know, she was like, say lovey. (laughs) They were- Do what you gotta do. You do what you gotta do. I mean, she had a, this is a woman, a young woman who had a very, very controlled childhood. When she was born, she was the basically heir apparent eventually after her father, after uh, her uncle uh, died. She was, she's the only legitimate granddaughter of King Charles III, King Charles, Jesus Christ, um, King George III. (laughs) King Charles III is right now. He has a lot of, whatever. Uh, She's the only legitimate granddaughter of King George she is born and she's this precious thing. And so she's raised under this incredibly strict system called the Kensington system with where mm. her mother like basically doesn't let her be a person mm. until she actually is literally queen of England. Mm. And so by falling in love and marrying this man, it's sort of her her act of rebellion and freedom. She sort of pushes her mother and her mother's advisor out of her orbit mm. and focuses all of her attention on on Albert. And they have an incredibly, by all accounts, happy marriage and and life for the, you know, for the years they have together. Does she empower him in an unusual way? They they had a partnership, really. I mean, I mm-hmm. guess the question is, what is unusual? It's unusual at all that it was in a late 1800s marriage where the woman had a more important job than the man. Absolutely. Absolutely. And probably also relatively rare for a marriage steeped in romantic love to be successful because most people had nothing. And so most people had a very hard life. And so even if they were in love with their spouse, it may not have played out so great, you know, through all the years. Yeah. But I'm, of course, contrasting it to the popular understanding or fantasy about Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip's relationship where, you know, from what I can gather and certainly what I imagine to be true, that that it was tough for a man to be second to his female spouse. And I don't know if there's any, um, you know, if there was any agitating on Albert's part or if the if the adoration was enough for him, if it was just, you know, I'm here for you because you're so wonderful to me and together we will, you know, found many museums, <laughs> have all these babies and have a great life. I think, you know... It's hard for me to to get into these people's heads. So a lot of this is guesswork. Sure. I think Victoria was so deferential to Albert that he felt mm. okay, you know. Mm. And I, I think it was a little bit harder, weirdly, for Philip. Because again, this is like the 1950s, right? This is like mm-hmm. when the idea of masculinity is at its real madman peak. And here's a situation where, you know, under Victoria, she was an empress. This is like, yeah, right. okay, the monarchy is at the height of its actual power. Whereas like Queen Elizabeth, like this is a symbolic role largely at this mm-hmm. point. And so it's, you know, maybe he had less of a inherent reverence, deference, refer- reverence. And so I think it might have been a little harder when they got into the argument that they did have where he was like, wait, so my kids aren't going to have my name. She's right. like, no, are you? I mean, she's like, she didn't say this, but if, if it was me, I would have been like, oh, are you effing kidding me? They're going to have like <laughs> my last name. That's a like Queen Victoria's last name. They're kind of your made up. German last name. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, I think that would have gone very well if you had put yeah. it like that. <laughs> I, I would have been great to be married to him. I would have been like, are you, 
Are you absolutely kidding me? And I have to think that the era of um, sort of media awareness that they existed in would have made it much more difficult too, because he's getting, you know, feedback from everyone about their relationship um, rather than just managing it privately, which is just a lot harder. Right. He's hearing every comment of someone saying like, oh, can you believe this guy walking one step behind his wife? Where also Queen Victoria was so deferential to her Mm. husband, where even though she was the queen, like, I mean, some she's she's using a lot of 1800s language and talking about how she like worships and obeys her husband. And so I feel like that he would have been okay with that. You know, she covered it. (laughs) She covered it because this is again, she she is so obsequious and and deferential to him that it would have been hard for him to get mad where it's like Queen Elizabeth, this is a sort of trickier situation, just as the monarchy is at this weird, like modernizing crux, like feminism and and masculinity and the, mm. the patriarchy is changing in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. I feel like we can't not talk about Wallace Simpson just a little teeny oh. bit. And I think most people probably know exactly who Wallace Simpson is, but just in case they missed it, (laughs) can you do a quick overview of that? Sure. Um, King George V had uh, two sons, and the oldest son obviously is is in line to inherit the throne, and he becomes King Edward VIII, but he falls in love with a divorced American actress named Wallace Simpson, and As the head of the Church of England, it's against church laws to marry a divorcee if their spouse is still alive. She's a a divorcee with a living spouse. That's bigamy. Like, you can't do that. And also for a bunch of other reasons, like he he fundamentally was ill-suited to being king. And he was a Nazi sympathizer, which we won't go into because Mm -hmm. I'll just get mad. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he... (laughs) Uh, abdicates the throne mm-hmm. in favor of his younger brother, who becomes George VI, who is Queen Elizabeth II's father. And so that's why mm-hmm. we have the line we have now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Wallace Simpson was this, uh, yeah, divorced American woman who scandalized the royal family by falling in love with uh, with David, but who took the regnal mm-hmm. name, uh, King Edward VIII. And uh, yeah, he abdicated the throne and they, they instead of being king and queen, they went with uh, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. She never got uh, her royal highness, which is sort of mm. like a, an honorary title because that was sort of them sticking it to her. And uh, they lived sort of the rest of their lives in France, visited, you know, chumming it up with Hitler, thinking, well, maybe if this Hitler chap wants to put us back on the throne, that would be fun, wouldn't it? Oh, I didn't realize there was that element to, to that relationship. It was sealed until very recently. Oh. This is a sort of thing that the royal family has not uh, broadcast. broadcast. <laughs> but there are, yeah, photographs. Uh, and when you have a photograph smiling next to Hitler, it's not a good look. No. Uh, but no, the, especially during the Second World War, obviously when Germany was the enemy, the British royal family tried very hard to make sure that it was suppressed that that um, Wallace and and David were cozying up or had been cozying mm-hmm. up with with the Germans. Uh, but yeah, they they sort of had this. I think what they characterized as this love story that he was willing to give up the the throne for her. But I think for a lot of other reasons, he was ill suited to being king, and I'm I'm glad he wasn't. Yeah, no kidding. Is. Is there another example of that happening that you know of, of 
someone falling in love and giving up their seat of power. Well, if we're also talking also about um, queer, possibly queer monarchs, mm-hmm. there was a queen of Sweden named Queen Christina, who uh, some people argue was um, lesbian or, or would have been. She she favored men's dress. Uh, she was, you know, queen of Sweden, but but resigned for whether it was religious reasons, she refused to marry, which was its own scandal, then converted to Catholicism secretly. And now I think she she's buried in the Vatican and is either the only woman buried in the Vatican or one of only a few women buried in the Vatican. But she's someone who gave up her throne, not for a man, but for a lack of man. Hmm. I just wanted to add that in the realm of people who are significantly influential, I have to say that your podcast, without it, I don't know that I would have ever thought to do what I'm doing. Not that that's any great shakes for the world, but but um, but I'm grateful. I'm so grateful that you do what you do. And um, I, I feel you're a, a trailblazer and I personally have benefited from that. So thank you. Oh my gosh, that is the truly the genuinely <laughs> kindest thing anyone has said. I feel very <laughs> Lucky that people let me rant into a microphone about historical figures I find interesting. And I am uh, I love when when that exists more in the world. So I'm very excited for what you're doing. Well, thank you so much. Um, do you have anything that you want? I know you're working on a couple of books. I don't know if you have anything that you want to plug or promote or send us to. Oh, my gosh, that would be great. I have um, a new book coming out in February called Immortality, A Love Story. And if you're interested in historical royals. I have a few cameos. I have Princess Charlotte of Wales appears, Lord Byron appears, a few other characters I've talked about on my podcast, uh, but it's available for pre-order now. That book sounds amazing. Um, Too late for this Christmas, but definitely in time for Valentine's Day. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This is such a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks again to Dana for joining us. If you haven't already, please check out her podcast, Noble Blood, wherever you get your podcasts. I promise you won't be disappointed. We'll continue to release bonus episodes while we work on season two, so be sure to hit the subscribe button. And as always, we welcome any and all suggestions for upcoming episodes. You can email us at significantpod at gmail.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.